pleasure to be with you again. Today we are going to be studying Nehemiah chapter 7 as we continue our look through this amazing Old Testament book about rebuilding the walls and the city of Jerusalem. Now in this chapter we are going to be looking at a genealogy. Now I know that you might be thinking uh, genealogy, wow, how how boring, you know, do I really want to sit down and watch a long video about a genealogy? Well, first of all, the video is not going to be that long. But second of all, what you are going to learn in it is, is what is the purpose of genealogies in the Bible? Sometimes we come through the Bible, we read through book by book, chapter by chapter, and we come to these long sections that have so many names and so much information that might appear to us to be quite boring. But why are these sections even included in Scripture? What can we learn from these sections and how can even those genealogies build up our faith? That is some of what we are going to be looking at in this lesson. So I hope you will stick with us to the very end. And then hopefully next time you come to genealogies in the Bible, instead of just skipping right over them, you will learn to appreciate why God put them there in the first place. So we're going to be looking at this in sections. The first section is Nehemiah 7, 1 through 5. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. There's that word, genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. And then he starts going into that genealogy in verse 6. Okay, so this is right after the wall has been completed. They faced a lot of opposition, but the wall was built in 52 days because the people of Israel united as one man to build this wall. They had unity, and they worked hard, and through God's help, through the strength God gave them, they finished this task. But that wasn't the end. The end goal wasn't just finish the wall and now we're done and it's smooth sailing from here. This was the beginning. There was still a lot of work to be done. Now, Nehemiah wanted to make sure that things were going to run smoothly and not regress. So there's, there are times to build and then there are times to preserve what has been built. Imagine how foolish it would be if after rebuilding the walls, then a tactical mistake allowed the enemy to come into the city and defeat them then the walls would seem to serve no purpose at all. So Nehemiah here continues to organize and delegate and make sure that every detail has been attended to. They set up doors, they set up gatekeepers, and also singers and Levites had been appointed for work in the temple. And then Nehemiah puts Hanani and Hananiah, uh, the governor of the castle, in charge over Jerusalem. Uh, it seems that he wants to appoint leaders that he knows and trusts. And he appoints leaders who fear God and are men of integrity. This is very, very important. A lot of times leaders are chosen for their charisma, for their eloquency, for their status, for their position, 
for their, you know, their tenure, how long they've been working there, and so on. But what we see in scripture is that it's very, very important to put faithful, God-fearing people as leaders. He wasn't chosen because of his money or his status or any of these things. He was chosen because that he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. He was a person of integrity. That should be the number one qualification that we look for in leaders is someone who fears God, someone who is integrity, who who has integrity and is faithful to obey God. And then Nehemiah gives uh, rules for the opening and closing of the gates. He says, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. So if one gate was left open at the wrong time, or if one spot was unguarded, all their work may have been done for nothing. Nehemiah understood that their achievements and past victories would not guarantee that the enemy would give up and stop trying to destroy them. The enemy was going to persevere, so they should persevere too. Now before, when he first came, you may remember that he was surveying the wall to find any weaknesses in order to fix it. But now his enemies would be surveying the wall to find any weaknesses in order to to exploit those weaknesses. So this is a reminder of what uh, Paul is talking about in Philippians uh, 3.12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, we cannot come to a point in our Christian lives when we say we've made it. We're done. We can retire. We've accomplished what we need to accomplish and we can have a rest. We can be done. No, he says, forget what is behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Don't rest on your laurels of your past victories or achievements and say, well, yesterday I did well, or last week I accomplished this, and so I can be done now. We need to keep pressing on. We need to keep pushing forward. And that is what we see Nehemiah doing in this chapter. We have to be alert and aware. If you've achieved a victory, you might be experiencing something of a spiritual high. It's at that point that we tend to let our guards down and some failures, some defeats often follow. So be very, very careful. Be vigilant. We also learn in 1 Peter 5.8 what that means. Uh, Peter said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded, be watchful, be vigilant. We should understand our weaknesses and then take any measures necessary to protect ourselves from temptation in those areas. So for them, they're putting uh, doors, they're putting gates, they're appointing guards, they're doing all of these things, which is what they can do to protect themselves from any possible weaknesses. Uh, We should consider, too, what are those temptations which uh, may have a foothold in our life and what practical measures can we do to root those out? So at this point, Nehemiah is going to call the people together. 
says, God put it into his heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And we'll see the result of this meeting in chapter 8, so make sure to tune in to the next one. But this reminds us that worshiping God is a community affair, both in the Old Testament and now we need to fellowship with other believers. It was very, very important for this remnant of the Israel nation, the remnant Jews, to meet together, to have this solidarity, to have this fellowship, this togetherness, this corporate worship. If they allowed themselves to be isolated, then they would be much weaker as a nation and as individuals and as families. They'd be much more susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. We need to fellowship with other believers. And so corporate worship and fellowship is the public side of our faith. You can, you need to receive that encouragement from others so that you can keep following after the Lord. And then you also need to encourage others because sometimes they may be uh, weak or tired and need encouragement and refreshment from you. Challenge each other. Two are stronger than one, and together we are stronger than by ourselves. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of the same thing. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, he says, Let us consider, so you should be actively thinking about this, how to stir up one another toward love and good deeds, good works, uh, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. So when you're going to meet together with other believers, think about how you can encourage them, how you can push them forward in their walk with the Lord. Okay, now we come into the genealogy. So they have finished building the walls, and now Nehemiah wants to kind of take stock of where they are as a nation. Uh, we will not read through all of this because it's it's quite a long section. It's uh, all the way from verse 6 through 69 is this list of people and their names and the numbers of each family. But I do want to share a little bit about what is the purpose of genealogies and what we can learn specifically from this uh, genealogy here. Uh, first, the general purpose of genealogies. We come, we, we read sections in the Bible and we come to all of these long lists of names. And the first tendency is, okay, this is boring. Why is this even here? But don't take those for granted because genealogies teach us that the Bible is a real historical book. It is rooted, it is grounded in real history. It's talking about real people who really lived and their families and where they lived. It's, it's a real history book. Now, this is very different from a lot of other religious books, which have a lot of mythology uh, and fantasy inside of them. And when you read these books, you realize, okay, this isn't a real thing that actually happened. This is fiction. But when you read the Bible, you see all of these names and all of these people in meticulous attention to detail. And you see that the writers are recording real history. Now, that is very, very important because you can see they were very, very careful on these points. They were very careful to write down these lists and to number all of these people and all of these objects. Yes, even in the end of this, we will see they listed out certain numbers of objects which they brought with them when they return. This gives the Bible more credibility that they're not just making up random facts or random stories. 
they are rooted in real history. And archaeology also bears that out, that many of the facts, many of the things in the Bible, people in the Bible have been uh, proven to be true even through other records outside of the Bible or through archaeology. So these really just ground, uh, ground us in the fact that the Bible is real history. And therefore, it is very uh, important. Many of these uh, timelines, many of these genealogies show us like timelines of, of how much time period passed in certain, uh, in certain things. And so it really helps historians also come in and date a lot of these sections and try to figure out when these things were happening. And then that puts what is happening in the scripture that we are reading about into the overall context of what is happening in the world at that time. So we're just going to uh, share a few notes out of here. I'm going to pick out a few things and see that th this is about the people. It says, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem, each to his town. So this is a list of people who returned from exile. This was after the 70 years of exile that Jeremiah prophesied about, after the exile that Daniel experienced when he was taken away from Jerusalem. This is the people who had been scattered, the diaspora, they'd been scattered throughout uh, first the Babylonian kingdom, but then it was taken over by the Persians. So they were scattered throughout the Persian kingdom. And then at the beginning of the book of Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel and other leaders led many of those people to go back to Jerusalem. They'd read about Jeremiah's prophecy. They read that uh, it was going to be 70 years. They knew the time was up. And other prophets like uh, Ezekiel were encouraging them to return to the land. And so they did. They returned to the land. And here it says that each returned to his town. So if you think about it, that must have been very difficult for them because these were people, most of them had never been in Jerusalem, never been in Judah before. They were born uh, abroad in the Persian or the Babylonian kingdoms. And only probably their grandparents or great-grandparents had ever had any physical, tangible connection to the land of Judah. And yet they believed that this was the land that God had given them. They believed that God was calling them to go back. And so they gave up everything. They gave up their jobs. They gave up their homes, their land, uh, their friends. They gave up whatever was, uh, whatever was drawing them to that uh, new place where they had settled. They gave up all their ties and they moved back really based on faith to a land that they had no physical connection to. And that is a very important reminder to us. These people obeyed God's will for them much like Abraham did when Abraham set off from his town, uh, from his city to a place where he didn't even know where God was going to lead him to go. And he just obeyed and he went. And so we have to do the same thing when we follow Christ. We must be willing to obey him no matter how much it costs. And that is what it means to be his disciple. These people return each to their own town. This reminds us again of the 
very, very careful record keeping. They did that they knew where they were descended from. They knew the town that uh, belonged to them. They each had their own property ownership still intact after all of this time because they kept track of their family lines, which was very important to them. So Ezra numbers all of this. Uh, you can read a very similar, almost the same list in Ezra chapter 2. It's a very organized return. There's nothing chaotic about it. Everything that is done in order. The New Testament tells us that God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. The leaders taking them back know exactly who is going back. That's also important. Imagine that you set off on a trip and you don't know how many people are going. You could definitely lose some people along the way and not even know it. So now they knew exactly how many members of each family were coming back and they could number throughout to make sure that they were back again. Even with only four kids, I do the same. Okay, there are six of us and we are going somewhere, so I count heads. One, two, three, four. Okay, we have them all. Okay, now we can go back. Imagine that multiplied many times over when there are thousands and thousands of people, how easy it would be to get lost without careful record keeping. So this gives a certain amount of safety and accountability. We see some from many different groups returning. There are people from uh, Benjamin. There are people from Judah, Levites, priests, temple servants. Uh, and let's see how many people return. We're going to jump through to the end of this. And there were about yeah, 42,360. The number of people returning seem very few. If you contrast that, there were about 2 million people leaving Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Israel has been humbled. Its position is very low. This is a rather weak nation and rather a small group of people. They have no standing. They have no status or power in world affairs. The few things they have were mostly given to them by charity. People gave them things and donated things to them so they could take it with them back to the land. And they only have the right to even return and be there because the leader of the empire they now serve in gave them permission. So they're not a strong, proud, independent nation anymore. They are lowly servants and really depending on the crumbs falling from their master's table. What can we learn from this? Well, God, it was certainly God's blessing to allow them to go back. God showed his mercy, his grace to them. He forgave them. He restored them to the land as he promised to do. And yet it's still a reminder to us that sin doesn't come without consequences. They had disobeyed God. They, they had turned to idol worship. God warned them repeatedly through the prophets and they didn't listen. And now this is the result. They were exiled. And then even those who returned were very few in number compared to what they were before. When we sin against God, God is gracious. He's like the father of the prodigal son. He's always willing to welcome us back. He loves us. He's willing to forgive us. But yet we should not forget that sin comes with consequences. And sometimes, even though God forgives, when we sin, then the consequences of that sin may cost us something in this life. It may cost us our job. It may cost us our home. It may cost us a relationship, a spouse, a relationship with a child. Sin comes with consequences. So it's far better to avoid those things at the beginning by obeying God on the front side. And yet, if we've already made those mistakes, we still remember God is forgiving, God is gracious, He will accept us back again and restore us to Himself 
as he did with the Jews here. Uh, if we look, we see that there were a number of people who could not find their registration. It says these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So there are a couple of groups who cannot find the records of their ancestry. So they, the conclusion was you cannot serve as a priest until we ascertain God's will for you. The Urim and the Thummim was a way to cast lots to ask God to give guidance on very tricky uh, situations. And then God would respond uh, generally with yes or no answers in order to lead his people in what to do. This isn't a method that was used very often, but occasionally the priest would resort to this method. Okay, let's go forward in the text. And we can see that the people donate to the work. So what did the people do when they got back? It says, Now some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. Some of the heads of father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Okay, so... Many people donated to basically the uh, treasury of the work. They needed money for supplies and, you know, to, to do this rebuilding project, creating infrastructure requires money. And so the people not only left, well, this was the previous generation, but they left their, their homes in the Persian Empire and... They left their jobs, they left their friends, they came back to the land. And now we see that they're also donating much of their own money to the work. And so this was making the nation strong because people weren't just serving by talk, by, by you know smooth speech saying, I want to be part of this, but they were actually engaging in self-sacrifice. They were giving things up in order to take part in this rebuilding project. They were willing to make a sacrifice in order to help. And so this reminds us of the importance of generosity, of the importance of giving. In Corinthians, it says that we shouldn't give under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, we can see that in, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. These people cheerfully gave and God blessed them for that and God used what they gave in order to do a great work there in that land. So for us today, we can donate our time, we can donate our energy, and we should also give generously from the money that God has given to us. Let's be good stewards of it so that we can build God's kingdom today.
So, so far in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen that the people are sacrificing for this project of building the wall. The whole nation comes together in unity, in harmony to do this project, and they're willing to sacrifice for it, and God gives them great success. So for us today, I hope that we will do the same thing. What is the work that God has called you to do? Are you sacrificing for it? They sacrificed their jobs and their homes and and basically everything they knew to come to this, for them, a new land. And then they even sacrificed financially. And then they sacrificed their time, their sweat, their tears. It was hard, hard work building this wall. And they did it because of their love for the Lord and their desire to build something that would last to protect his people. And so also in this passage, we are reminded that genealogies are in the Bible for a purpose. And God puts them there to remind us that the Bible is real history. It is trustworthy and it is credible. I hope that you have learned something useful from this lesson. And I hope that you will also join us next time. We'll be studying Nehemiah chapter 8. Take care. Hope to see you then. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.